you're listening to The Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense, discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. Future Mac here. This episode, which we recorded several months ago now, ran pretty long, and so we're splitting it into two parts. Luckily, there is a natural split because... In this episode, we cover two versions of the same story, one from The Golden Legend and one from Alfric's Lives of Saints. So in this episode, we're going to have the Golden Legend version and then a more recently recorded segment where we address some listener correspondence. And in the next episode, we'll have Alfric's version and our usual segments. So there you go. Enjoy. This week. Since, as you know, we rescheduled, I had to pick something quickly. So yesterday I was thinking about it and trying to find something that I could have ready to go tomorrow slash today. Yes. That wasn't just another visit to the Gesta Romanorum or the Tang Dynasty records. Which are both fantastic. Which are both fine, but I don't want to overdo them. That's fair. And then I remembered that... Last time we recorded, we got hung up on who are these seven sleepers. <gasps> Ooh, you're right. Yes. So what I have here is the legend of the seven sleepers. Hey, hey, hey. oh, this is perfect. Hand in hand with with that wasn't even Kukulin. That was um, that's in the charms. Yeah, against a dwarf, whatever. Whatever interpretation of dwarf you want to go with there. So I've actually got two versions here. I have here this little tiny book. Uh Uh-huh. This is Curious Myths of the Middle Ages by Sabine Baring Gould. Ooh, that's a great name right there. It is. He's quite well known and was actually name-checked by H.P. Lovecraft. In his essay, Supernatural Horror in Literature, H.P. Lovecraft refers to this book. This book was published in the 1880s. Oh my gosh. At least this copy is from the 1880s. I don't know if it's older than that. Oh my gosh. Uh, It refers to this book as that curious body of medieval lore, which the late Mr. Baring Gould so effectively assembled in book form. Oh my gosh. And the reason he brings that up is because Lovecraft is convinced that a lot of the motifs of modern horror were already established in the legends that Baron Gould has collected here. I think I would agree with that. That makes a lot of sense. And so we may come back to this book more since I've got okay. a copy of it. Oh, it's teeny. It's so little. Yes. I love how charming small. it is. It's like this little brown book that you really wouldn't. Like, you'd glance over it in some old library and you wouldn't really pick it up because you can't read what's on the on the spine. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that it is actually designed to fit in a jacket pocket because it is exactly the same size as the pockets on my tweed jackets. That is perfect. Oh my gosh. It just reminds me of, like, a dinner party where you're like, oh, we're, like, holding two and you just pull it out. <laughs> Cocktail party talk for academics. Amazing. So what Baring Gould has is a translation of the version in the Golden Legend and then a few pages of commentary on that. Ooh, okay. You always find these amazing works with great commentary on the end. This one that doesn't have commentary but is much more in-depth is 
as I mentioned last time, this is one of Alfric's sermons where he tells the story of the seven uh, sleepers. Okay, and con- contextualize who Alfric is for our for our listeners. Alfric, that's spelled Ash L F R I C, is er, was a preacher in early medieval England, and he's pretty well known because some manuscripts of his series of sermons and homilies survive. And they're set up so that you give a different one each week. And he has enough for, I think, three years. That is impressive. Yeah. That is wonderfully impressive. Modern, I think modern preachers should take note because the amount of years that I was in youth group and they would use the same ones every single year. It was like you could pick the Sunday and you're like, I know what he's going to talk about because it's been a year since we've done it. And sure enough, you'd be correct. That's wild, because in Catholic churches, you are supposed to have a rotation of you yeah. do this on Pentecost and this on this day. But you you grew up in a Protestant church, so they should yes. be... I, I thought that like their whole thing was they just talk about what seems relevant to the community. They do. That's like the main service, but the, like, the youth group in particular, the youth pastor would like go on this rotation. Oh, man. And it was based around, like, the academic year. And so it's like, all right, we're entering a new season for the academic year in September. And you'd go through the entire thing. And then Valentine's Day was the worst. The worst. Because you'd always get, like, sermons on modesty. and I was going to say, it's got to be about yeah. abstinence, right? It, yeah, it's it, that. And then, like, Christian purity culture, which... Is toxic? <laughs> it's incredibly toxic in a lot of ways. And you have to differentiate between, or at least this is how I view it, you have to differentiate between what the scripture, what the, what the text actually says, and then what's passed down through tradition. Because I think a lot of Christian, especially Protestant, modesty culture comes from tradition, but not doctrine. Mm-hmm. And so when you start parsing that apart, it's like, why are we doing these things? And one of those phrases that you'll hear that kids just mock, kids in the church mock, is no purple, because it comes from this horrible, antiquated... I know, your face is exactly what people say. Like, they, they look at me like that, like, what do you mean no purple? But you're dressing like an emperor. <laughs> no, it's worse than that, because it's you can't mix, you can't mix red and blue. Red being the girls and blue being the boys. So if you went on like a trip somewhere, no purple. So it's not from scripture at all. It's like just no, a- no. It's just it's completely tradition. That sort of Christian purity culture that does not come from any established doctrine and is mostly just traditional drives me insane. So you, yeah, you could rotate, and so every single time we got to February, it was like, all right, here we go. <laughs> See, I thought youth group leaders were supposed to be like, use words like radical and pretend that they skateboarded and, you know, generally be like about 20 years behind actual youth culture. Generally, But like really enthusiastically so. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Although, to be fair, I did have a fantastic youth pastor growing up. But being in Alaska, we just did crazy outdoor stuff all the time. So he was actually pretty with it. But going back to Alfred, is this the same Alfred who did Alfred's Lives of Saints. Is this that yes. same guy? Okay, yes. cool. So that's this another is, this touchdown. This is actually from the Lives of Saints. Okay, okay, cool, cool, cool. The series of sermons that is released under the name Alfred's Lives of Saints is him talking about each saint on their saint's day. Oh, isn't that great? There's a lot of Catholic tradition that still does that as well. So to further contextualize this then, we have 
Alfric's version of the Seven Sleepers, which comes from like 900, basically, or 950 AD. Somewhere around And then we have this 1800s copy that's been like passed down eventually and and collected at some point. And it's translated from the Golden Legend. The Golden Legend is the work of Jacques D. Hold on, let me do my patented French accent. Uh, this is Jack of Voragine. Jack <laughs> of Voragine. Oh, no. Who was an Italian author, actually, who just happens to be named Jacques. Okay. In the 13th century. Okay, okay. The Golden Legend was apparently composed by an Italian who is best known as Jacobus da Varadgine. He's from this place, yeah, probably. Yeah. But for some reason, Sabine Baron Gould refers to it, makes him French, or at least gives him a French name. He's 13th century. I think we established last week that it came from, like, some of the names came from the Middle Eastern tradition. Yes. Okay. The original uh, Seven Sleepers is a Syriac legend, I think it is, from, mm-hmm. like, the, that fuzzy area where it's like, is, this is either the late classical period or the early medieval period. Also, when I uh, looked them up on Wikipedia to, like, find out what the various editions are, I think it said that, that, that this legend appears in the Quran. Really? Yeah. Oh, very interesting. Well, a version of it, because... A version of it. Yeah. Different tradition than the one that got to Alfric and uh, Jack, but Mm -hmm. from the same (laughs) root. All right. And eventually H.P. Lovecraft. But anyway, Alfric, we have all his stuff. Not only did it survive in manuscript form, but a lot of the motivation behind some of the early work with stuff written in Anglo-Saxon was by the Anglican church trying to get back to their roots. So people were very interested in the kinds of sermons that were being given. At that point. Yeah. Anyway, Alfred's Lives of Saints, which is where I get this version from, was transcribed from the manuscripts and edited by W.W. Skeet, which is a name that most people in medievalism will recognize. I was going to say, I know that name. (laughs) Yeah, because in the late 19th century, he did a ton of work in philology, and he, he has several editions of stuff. A lot of the little short articles and notes and queries are from him, etc., etc. But he didn't do the translating, or he didn't do all of the translating. He did some of it. Because in his preface, he notes that the modern English translation is, quote, Though revised by myself, almost entirely the work of Ms. Gunning of Cambridge and Ms. Wilkinson, formerly of Dorking. Oh, Okay. I tried to find out who these women are, but no luck. I just kept finding that same preface over and over again, or like notes that, oh yes, Skeet credits the translation to Mrs. That's Miss plural, not Mrs. with an R. Gunning and Wilkinson. It doesn't say who they are. Huh. I'm going to assume that like they were some, they were some of his students or something. I was going to say maybe, maybe students of his, but there we go. Some female academics from way back when. Yeah, this this is like, again, the Victorian era. Huh, there you go. Apparently they did almost all of the translating. He does note that like, oh, I did this one and this one and this one, but most of it was them. 
And then he just like looked it over and put it in. So I feel like they were probably students. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, Alfred's Alfred's version is much longer because he had to fill the the whole church service with it. (laughs) Classic. So there is a lot of added detail and repetition. So I'm going to let you choose which one you want to hear first. Ooh. Let's do the Sparknotes version first, and then we can compare the two of them and see sort of what got condensed into this Victorian one and then how Alfred kind of expounds upon these these individuals. All right. So here is Baron Gould's translation of the Golden Legend. The seven sleepers were natives of Ephesus, or possibly Ephesus. How do you say that? I've always said Ephesus. Ephesus. The Emperor Decius, who persecuted the Christians... Oh, right. This is something that (laughs) I need to bring up. The whole basis of, like, this legend is this is during the persecution of Decius. And I did some research, by which I mean I re-listened to Totalis Rankium's episode on Decius. And I can report that... If you told Decius that he was going to be mostly remembered for his persecution of the Christians, he would have been deeply confused. Oh, no! And he may have said, I'm sorry, the who? Oh, gosh. That's Okay, that's fair. That's fair. So so what should he be remembered for, Sparknotes version? Not much. Valid. He was only emperor for a couple years. He was during the crisis of the third century. He's part of what... Totalis Rankium categorizes as the fall, where things just keep getting worse every year. So the backdrop we've got, and the reason he's remembered for persecution, is he comes in as emperor. Forcibly, he had to dethrone the last person, because that was happening all the time at this period. Right. Pretty standard stuff for the fall of Rome. Yeah. It's honestly weird that he had to, because the, the guy he dethroned had been recorded saying, I don't want to do this. It's too hard. Everything's going wrong. Or something to that effect. <laughs> But anyway, so he comes in and everything's falling apart. There are barbarians at the gates. There's a plague. There's economic problems. The treasury's empty. Basically, everything that could possibly be going wrong is. So 2020. Yes. Yeah, it's 2020, except... It's 2020, except it's... I think this might have been 220. There we go. So he sits down with his advisors and he's like, okay, we need to figure out which of the 10 million problems we need to deal with first. And... Possibly just because they're overwhelmed with the number of problems, what they come up with is the problem, the real problem at the root of all this, is that the gods must be angry with us. Okay. And so what we're going to do is we're going to propitiate the gods by ordering every citizen of the Roman Empire to make a sacrifice. Okay. Someone said, I'm sorry, Decius. Presumably, this is how it went. Someone says, I'm sorry, Decius. There are some people in the Roman Empire who won't do that for religious reasons. And Decius says, oh, right. Well, of course, the Jews don't have to. We all know they've got their own thing going on. (laughs) Oh, no. Little did he know there was this new tiny group. Yeah. And presumably, at this point, someone said, good job. Religious tolerance is important. And again, if someone had said... Wait, but what about the Christians? He would have probably said, I'm sorry, the who? The who? Okay. Makes sense. Makes sense. So the order goes out. Everyone has to make a sacrifice unless you're Jewish. Then you get a pass because we know that they've got their own thing going on. Their religion's older than the empire. There's respect there. Okay. 
That's an interesting take. Yeah, well, I mean, they've been around forever, and everyone knows they've got that whole one god thing. That whole one, yeah. Like we're not gonna touch that. They they can do yeah. whatever. All right. One of the one of the things the Totalis Rankium guys point out is apparently of those who were aware of like the Christians' issues with who was and wasn't a god, they were mostly just seen as stubborn because the Romans would be like, okay. So you're on board with the Jewish God and you're on board with this Jesus fellow, but you're not on board with Jupiter. I don't oh. get it. I'm willing to say Jesus exists. Why aren't you willing to say Jupiter exists? Stop being oh a Oh my d- gosh. <laughs> yeah, that, you know, from, from a pagan perspective or a Roman perspective, that makes a lot of sense. It's yeah. like, well, what about, like, you're okay with this guy and he died, like, what, a hundred years ago, 200 years ago, but you won't, Jupiter's right there, man. Yeah. Plus, you know, you got the you got all the festivals. Right. So there you go. The whole thing was basically everyone has to sacrifice. Christians didn't get an exclusion and things went wrong, probably spurred on by the fact that the Pope at the time very publicly refused to do the sacrifice and got executed for it. And, you know, then he was a martyr and it was a whole thing. Makes sense. And then Decius got killed. So who knows if he was even aware of any of this? Yes. On to the next, the next emperor. <laughs> One more thing on Decius, and this is another thing that the Totalis Rankium guys pointed out. He is remembered as the first Roman emperor to die in battle against a foreign enemy because a, a few of them had been killed by each other at this point. Huh. That may- okay. All right. The, the first Roman empire to die in battle against someone other than other Romans. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. What does that say about? your government when like all your politicians are just killed by the next politician well there is a reason that this period is referred to as the crisis of the third century that's fair because everything was horrible for about a century (laughs) oh no all right well you know if we've done it before we can do it again right all right so that's the backdrop okay because i I want to make sure we're not slandering decius too much all right Anyway, the Emperor Decius, who persecuted the Christians, having come to Ephesus, ordered the erection of temples in the city, that all might come and sacrifice before him. And he commanded that the Christians should be sought out and given their choice, either to worship the idols or to die. Oh, okay. So we're, we're definitely framing <laughs> this a certain way, shall we say? <laughs> yes, because, you know, the, the this is all being written down by Christians. They're like, oh yeah, that guy killed us all, and... Like, from the perspective of most of the Empire, this was, like, a weird footnote in the general... Yeah. Oh, let's propitiate the gods. Oh, these people are being stubborn about it. Who cares? We've got other things going on. But now that's... Once those people become the dominant religion, that's the only thing that's remembered from this. Okay. Now, there were in Ephesus seven Christians. Maximian, Malchus, Martian... Dionysus, John, Serapion, and Constantine by name. There we go. Yeah, that's the those are the names from the charm. These refused to sacrifice to the idols and remained in their houses praying and fasting. They were accused before Decius, and they confessed themselves to be Christians. However, the emperor gave them a little time to consider what line they would adopt. Because you know, <laughs> what line? Because he would doesn't. Because <laughs> he doesn't care. He's like, I'm sorry, you're what? <laughs> They took advantage of this reprieve to dispense their goods among the poor, and then they retired all seven to Mount Kelion? Celion? I don't know. C-E-L-I-O-N. I don't know. Kelion? 
Yeah, Kellyan, where they determined to conceal themselves. One of their number, Malchus, in the disguise of a physician, went to the town to obtain victuals. Victuals. Decius, who had been absent from Ephesus for a little while, returned and gave orders for the seven to be sought. Malchus, having escaped from the town, fled, full of fear, to his comrades and told them of the emperor's fury. They were much alarmed, and Malchus handed them the loaves he had bought, bidding them eat, that, fortified by the food, they might have courage in the time of trial. They ate. That makes sense. Yes. <laughs> like, like, if you're going to go into something rough, you, you want to have, you know, your protein and your carbs before you go into it. Right. I feel like my first reaction was this is a weird detail to include, but then I was like, this is probably like a communion thing. Oh, yeah. The, the, the fellowship makes a lot of sense. They ate, and then as they sat weeping and speaking to one another, by the will of God, they fell asleep. Right. I I want to point out that usually we don't need to say that sleep happens by the will of God, but whatever. It's a miracle sleep. <laughs> of course it is. <laughs> but we're dealing with the lives of the saints. It That's has true. to be a miracle sleep. A miracle. <laughs> it, is, it astounds me when you go through the lives of saints how many everyday occurrences are typified as miracles. It yeah. just amazes me. And, like, to be fair, there's several instances of, like, her head was cut off and then she regrew another head. It's like, okay, yeah, that that's a miracle for sure. That's wild. That's a good miracle. Yeah, you know? And then so now she's got, like, she's... The best part about that one is that two different churches can claim to have, you know, what's-her-name's head because she's got two heads. I wonder if they so did they that on purpose. So they both have the relics. So, That's but smart. then again, there's other things. It's like, oh, a spring. It's a miracle spring. And you're like, why? Why is it a miracle spring? And it's like, well, we'll just cover up the fact that it was a pagan spring, but we'll just say it's St. Bridget's spring or whoever right. it is. But I digress. Continue on. I do, I do remember that. I think this is also Alfred, actually. St. Cuthbert, one of the miracles listed in his life is like, he was going to a house to uh, spend the night and a piece of bread fell out of the rafters. And so he was fed. And maybe there was just bread up there. Maybe That's someone amazing. just stashed it. Maybe a mouse dropped it. Like, who knows? Wasn't, wasn't there one of the kings who was also a saint? It wasn't Cuthbert. Who was it? I'm just, I think there have been a few kings that have been made saints. That, have, that are also saints. I always love those because then whatever they do in their kingship is also saintly. Yeah. I also those are those are great. I enjoy those. But anyway, so they fell asleep by the grace of God. Yes, the pagans sought everywhere but could not find them, and Decius was greatly irritated at their escape. He had their parents brought before him. <laughs> oh wow! Okay. I guess their parents are not Christians? Or maybe they were just like, fine, whatever. I, I I killed a pigeon. Go away now. Either way. Another side note, that is a, a route a lot of people made, which is like, fine, I killed a thing. But then they had the problem of, strangely, their churches were not really on board with forgiving them for that. Ugh. Oof. But I mean, that's fine. It's not like forgiveness is a big tenant of their religion. That's fair. <laughs> that's, that's interesting. Because it is idolatrous to sacrifice to another god, which they were technically doing. But also, forgiveness is a major tenet of Christianity, so. Also, I feel like there should be an under duress clause where you're like, look, I didn't mean it. <laughs> I just I just had I, to. That's fair. I, I mean, you know, Jesus didn't have an under duress clause and he was pretty under duress. So I feel like if the son of God himself didn't have one, then you don't get one either. Well, I mean, he's divine. He he gets special rules. 
You can't expect mortals to put up with the same kind of thing. All right, so the parents are dragged before. Yes, and they are threatened with death if they did not reveal the place of concealment. But they could only answer that the seven young men had distributed their goods to the poor, and that they were quite ignorant as to their whereabouts. Decius, thinking it possible that they might be hiding in a cavern, why, I don't know, blocked up the mouth with stones. How he knew which cavern, I also don't know. That they might perish of hunger. 360 years passed, and in the 30th year of the reign of Theodosius, who, in a wild departure from Decius, was made emperor as a baby and continued being emperor until old age, so he has, I think, the longest reign on record. Gosh, well done, sir. But, you know, he was emperor in Constantinople, so it's different. Yeah, I was going to ask if he was a Byzantine emperor, because is that technically the Roman Empire, technically... I mean, this is before the Western Roman Empire had actually fallen, but it was while the Eastern Roman Empire was kind of doing its own thing already. Fair enough. Anyway, Theodosius is right. There broke forth a heresy denying the resurrection of the dead. I think this is like people are arguing over whether the bodily resurrection is a real thing or not. And Oh, 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 oh. Which heresy? Is that, is that, that's the Arian heresy, is it not? I think that one is one of the ones that's like one of those points of, but are Jesus and God of the same substance or? That's fair. Cause there, there was a prominent heresy at the time of Christ coming back spiritually, but not physically. And in order for the sins of man to be forgiven, Christ needed to be bodily resurrected as well as spiritually resurrected. So like the, the physical flesh had to come back as well. So that's probably what that's referring to. All of the heresies from the early church, basically, I I just let them blend together because they all boil down to like, here are hundreds of people killing each other over a participle or something. So it's all some like ridiculous minutia that they've decided warrants murder. I mean, that goes well into the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation, to be fair. Because you've got the Marburg Colloquy, which is when Zwingli and Luther sit down and end up arguing over, like, the word the, according to transubstantiation, and, you know, spirit devours spirit, and then Zwingli starts making arguments about, you know, other things, and comparing Martin Luther to a cane against a wall being wobbly and strange. So, regardless, this heresies over participles have a very long history. That's at least more civil than the Arian heresy, which I believe involved St. Nicholas himself punching someone in the face at a <laughs> uh, at one of those, what do you call them? Congresses? Colloquies? Councils. Yeah, the councils. Oh my gosh. You know, part of me really wants to see that. <laughs> like, if he, if he could go back in time. <laughs> if I could go anywhere. Back in time, I just want to see St. Nick just punch a guy in the face. I know, right? That would be fantastic. This is another thing I remember entirely because of Totalis Rankium, because for the rest of every time they bring up a heresy, they're like, and Father Christmas was on one side and the Easter Bunny was on the other. (laughs) Yes. Okay, so they woke up after so and so many years. Yeah, and there's a heresy, and this is where Baron Gould makes an excellent decision because there's an ellipsis. Oh. And then it moves on to the story, and I feel like the original talked about, like, the details of the heresy, and no one cares. Fair enough. Now, it happened that an Ephesian was building a stable on the side of Mount Kelion, 
And finding a pile of stones handy, he took them for his edifice, and thus opened the mouth of the cave. Then the seven sleepers awoke, and it was to them as if they had slept but a single night. They began to ask Malchus what decision Decius had given concerning them. He is oh, going no. to hunt us down so as to force <laughs> us to sacrifice to the idols, was his reply. God knows, replied Maximian. We shall never do that. Then, exhorting his companions, he urged Malchus to go back to the town to buy some more bread, and at the same time to obtain fresh information. So... Let me get this straight. They ate and took a nap before they learned what was to be done with them? Yes. That'd be like the first thing I want to know. Is like, are we going to get killed? What do we need to do? Like, Do we even have time to eat? Would be my question. Right. And apparently they also spent some time weeping while they, and talking while they ate. And apparently this is not what they talked or wept about. Okay. Malchus took five coins and left the cavern. On seeing the stones, he was filled with astonishment. However, he went on towards the city. But what was his bewilderment on approaching the gate to see over it a cross? He went to another gate, and there he beheld the same sacred sign. Now, this is another thing where I'm like, I feel like this is an anachronism. Because during the time of the actual Roman Empire, I don't think you see a cross and think Christianity. You see a cross and think, oh, who's getting killed? That's fair, I think. Because when was Theodosius, technically? Because the uh, Byzantines... We're in the 5th century now. Okay, okay. The Byzantines still latched on pretty quick to Christianity. Yeah. So, if it... okay, I think it depends on where the cross is. Because if it's a cross over a doorway, then it's, it's like small enough to be a little, you know, icon, as opposed to seeing a giant cross on a hill and being like, well, who's getting killed today? I mean, I'm willing to believe that, like, they, they were using crosses as religious symbols by the time of Theodosius. I'm yeah. not willing to believe they were doing it in the time of Decius, which means that Malchus shouldn't see them and think Christians. Oh, oh, I see the differentiation here. Because back then, weren't they still just using the fish? The Jesus fish? I don't know. I mean, I think the cross... I mean, if if you kill God on a cross, the cross is going to be a symbol pretty quick. Sure. Because the isn't the fish in part made up of the cross? No, it's just two lines. It's so... That's true. It's designed so the that, like, you, you, you trade... Oh, or the Cairo, that's true. That was Constantine's era, too. Yeah. But the, the point of the Jesus fish is that you can just trace it in the dirt with your foot. Like, you can do half of it just casually, and then the uh, other person can do the other does. half to say, like, yeah, I'm a Christian, too. Okay, okay. All right. I don't know. When when was the cross first, like, really developed as an icon? That's a good question. I'm sure it was part of the whole belief system for a while, but it was also still a contemporary execution method for a while. Yeah. Yeah, for so, sure. So, like, there were crosses in the reign of Decius. They probably didn't mean Christians. Yeah. Huh, that's interesting. Yeah, that could be very anachronistic. Yeah, so that, that just struck me. He went to another gate, and there he beheld the same sacred sign. And so he observed it over each gate of the city. He believed that he was suffering from the effects of a dream. Then he entered Ephesus, rubbing his eyes, and walked to a baker's shop. He heard people using our Lord's name, and he was the more perplexed. <laughs> wow. So this conversion happened really quick. <laughs> Yesterday, no one dared pronounce the name of Jesus, and now it is on everyone's lips. Wonderful. I can hardly Hallelujah. believe myself to be in Ephesus. <laughs> glory, glory. That's a heck of a miracle. 
He asked a passerby the name of the city, and on being told it was Ephesus, he was thunderstruck. Now he entered a baker's shop and laid down his money. Does Sorry, hang on. Does the text actually say thunderstruck? This one does, yes. I just think that's wonderful, given that isn't being thunderstruck like an attribute of Jove and Zeus? I think it is. Well, I think it's also the literal translation of astounded. Oh, that's fair. I might have to look that up, but I've heard that. Huh. I did not know that. Anyway, continue. No, no continue. I'm looking it up. I'm going to edit out this pause later. Because <laughs> if it is, if, like, the fact that he just used the word thunderstruck, and it has Greek connotations to Jupiter and Jove and, and Zeus by whatever name you want to call him. Honestly, I'm impressed that that was your first thought, because I was thinking ACDC. <laughs> Fair enough. I'll look up the cross one while you're doing this. Okay, so Constantine converted in the 4th century and crucifixion was abolished at that time. So it began its promotion in the 4th century, but that was mostly the Cairo too. Okay, so apparently it was used pretty early on, as early as the 200s. And we are talking the early 200s when we're talking about Decius. So he may have been familiar with it. I still think that if you see a cross in 200 AD in Rome, you're more likely to think someone's getting nailed to that. Yeah. If you saw, I think if you saw it as a symbol, it would be like, oh, there might be a Christian here, but it would have been more of a hidden symbol. Also, as regards astound, according to the OED online, the etymology and form history, quote, present points of difficulty. But their leading suggestion is that it comes to English through French, originally from classical Latin, atonare, to strike with a thunderbolt. Oh, okay. So it's the same sort of history. Yeah, if if it said atonare and you translated it as thunderstruck, that's completely valid. Yeah, cool. All right. Now he entered a baker's shop and laid down his money. The baker, examining the coin inquired whether he had found a treasure, and began to whisper to some others in the shop. The youth, thinking that he was discovered, and that they were about to conduct him to the emperor, implored them to let him alone, offering to leave loaves and money if he might only be suffered to escape. Oh no. Wait, how many years exactly has gone by? 360 is what the text says. I I remember seeing a note that, like, the math is off there somewhere if you go by the actual reigns of the actual emperors, but... That would make sense. Anyway, so now we're about to see how kind and wonderful these Christians in this town are. Oh, wow. as you know, they've all converted. Yes, of course. But the shopman, seizing him, said, Whoever you are, you have found a treasure. Show us where it is, that we may share it with you. And then we will hide you. Malchus was too frightened to answer. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. They're like, the kid's got to have more of these. Exactly. <laughs> wow. But anyway, so they, they scared the kid. And as good Christians do, they put a rope around his neck and drew him through the streets into the marketplace. Okay. The news soon spread that the young man had discovered a great treasure. And there was presently a vast crowd about him. He stoutly protested his innocence. No one recognized him, and his eyes, ranging over the faces which surrounded him, could not see one which he had known, or which was in the slightest degree familiar to him. I feel like his opinion of the way the city has changed must have just dramatically shifted, because he went in going like, Oh, wow, they've all converted. This is great. It's like a wonderful dream. And then he tries to buy bread, and they're like, Where'd you get this money? 
<laughs> this poor guy. He's having a really hard day. He he went from like I don't even know. He went from almost being executed to being kidnapped. Yeah. So insofar as that's a miracle, like there's some pretty harsh consequences of you know 360 years later you wake up like how has the technology changed that probably not extensively well maybe some i don't know well the, cu- the currency is different the weights and measurements are probably all different yeah the uh alfred actually goes into some explanation of like why they can tell and it's because the currency has been really adulterated by this time like the coins right. from decius's era were might have been made of actual silver right than just silver colored exactly. i don't know if that's historically accurate but that was his explanation well, it, it makes sense because currency at least was being cut down. Yeah, but I think that would have that was going on in the third century too, because the economy was in shambles at that time. True. Oh, follow up question: Are we still in this whole like fall of Rome, or is this when things are starting to get better? Things are starting to get well. Depends. <laughs> the crisis of the third century has passed, and there's now Fair a enough. different issue wherein things are kind of starting to fall apart in the West. Right. But he's in but the Byzantium. East. Yeah, Byzantium is pretty okay. Yeah, and I think Ephesus is in Greece, so he's probably fine. So, like, the area where he is is doing good. See, that's probably why he was so amazed when he first walked in. Because he's like, wow, they really renovated this place. Yeah, it's looking pretty too. good. Anyway, St. Martin, the bishop, and Antipater, the governor, having heard of the excitement, ordered the young man to be brought before them, along with the bakers. The bishop and the governor asked him where he had found the treasure, and he replied that he had found none, but that the few coins were from his own purse. He was next asked whence he came. Okay, I would have I would have thought he was a liar if he said that. Yeah. You didn't notice that you were carrying three hundred year old coins? Yeah. You're like, no 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 you're no, you're a liar. This poor guy. He was next asked whence he came. He replied that he was a native of Ephesus. Quote, if this be Ephesus, unquote which does not make you sound convincing. No. <laughs> to be to be fair, if I, if I were the governor, I'd be like, okay, this kid, this kid's a scammer. He's lying. He's got these coins from somewhere. He wants to say that he lives here, but he's not really sure what town this is. Apparently, he can't name any living relatives. Yep, that is the next step. Yes. Send for your relations, your parents, if they live here, ordered the governor. They live here, certainly, replied the youth, and he mentioned their names. No such names were known in the town. Of course. Follow-up comment there. How weird must their names have been? That was my thought, too, because, like, hmm, it depends on how wealthy his family is, because some of those old Roman names are, like, seven names long. That's fair. But they are all named after each other. Yeah. Like, there's gotta be, like, a Marius in the town. Right. Like, you'd think they would just happen to be someone there with the same name, unless the actual language has shifted enough that this is no longer a thing. Oh, either that or it's, I think in some of the societies you say, like, Hebrew society was like this, you name yourself and your your name is based on your father's name. So uh, Icelandic does this, too. Mm-hmm. So Zoe, daughter of you know Susan, da, 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 whatever. So if he was doing that, that would make a lot of sense too. Why no one would recognize the names? Because he could right. go back several generations. I don't know if they did that here. Then the governor exclaimed, "How dare you say that this money belonged to your parents when it dates back three hundred and seventy-seven years?" Asterisk. This calculation is sadly inaccurate. <laughs> Thanks for letting us know, fam. <laughs> and is as old as the beginning of the reign of Decius, which, again, D 
Decius did not reign a long time, so the beginning of the reign of Decius and the end of the reign of Decius are not far apart. I was going to say, it's probably the same year, isn't it? I think he was there for two years, but yeah. Oof. So let me check. Yep. He became emperor in September 249 and was killed in July 251. So he made okay. it less than two years. Oh, man. Alrighty then. And is utterly unlike our modern coinage. Do you think to impose on the old men and sages of Ephesus? Believe me, I shall make you suffer the severities of the law till you show where you made the discovery. I implore you, cried Malchus, in the name of God, answer me a few questions and then I will answer yours. Where is the Emperor Decius gone to? <laughs> there's, there's already so much here for a D&D campaign. Right? Like, it, it's writing itself. I feel like this whole thing would just be a great premise. You you uh, and your party have woken up after 300 years. That would be so good. You don't even need to evoke a miracle. It can just be like a basilisk. There you go. Or or like one specific character's backstory. It's like one of the players will talk about something that happened however many years ago, and they have the wrong currency. Uh, but that's for later. Yeah. This I, is amazing. One of the character concepts I've long wanted to play is uh, someone who was turned to stone by a Medusa or something like <gasps> hundreds of years ago and was only recently rescued. Yes! Anyway, the bishop answered, My son, there is no emperor of that name. He who was thus called died long ago. Oh. Malchus just replied, All I hear perplexes me more and more. Follow me, and I will show you my comrades, who fled with me into a cave of Mount Kelion only yesterday to escape the cruelty of Decius. I will lead you to them. Okay, I would have gone from this guy's a scammer to this guy's just insane at this point. I would have been thinking more like he's leading us to an ambush. Okay, that is also a possibility. Like, this guy's a scammer, and he has his buddies outside of town just in case, and he's trying to get us That's to let him fair. go to them. But he's he's just so genuine about this. He comes off as so like genuinely upset about what's going <laughs> on. Oh. The bishop turned to the governor. The hand of God is here, he said. So that's his interpretation. Then they followed, and a great crowd after them. And Malchus entered first into the cavern to his companions, and the bishop after him. And here Baring Gould has another ellipsis, so I can only assume they kept listing the people who <laughs> went into oh, the cave. Oh no. Yeah, fair enough. Because I don't have any other interpretation for why there would be something cut there. And there they saw the martyrs seated in the cave, with their faces fresh and blooming as roses. So all fell down and glorified God. The bishop and the governor sent notice to Theodosius, and he hurried to Ephesus. All the inhabitants met him and conducted him to the cavern. As soon as the saints beheld the emperor, their faces shone like the sun. And the emperor gave thanks unto God, and embraced them, and said, I see you. As though I saw the Savior restoring Lazarus. I feel like that's a good way to greet someone, <laughs> is to give them a hug and say, I see you. <laughs> that's pretty intense. I see you as I see the Savior restores Lazarus. Wow. Were you there? That's pretty intense. Ugh. Plus, like, I'm amazed that the Emperor deigned visit. Well, like, you get a letter about, bro, you'll never believe what's happened. These seven guys from 360 years ago have shown up out of a cave. You gotta come see their cave. That's a good point. 
Like, I, I feel like he has other things going on. I think this might be when Attila the Hun was around, too. So he probably oh, has dear. other concerns. I'm yeah. this up now. When was Attila the Hun around? Attila the Hun became ruler of the Huns in 434. And, and this is Theodosius too. Oh, okay. The 30th year of Theodosius's reign was actually three years before Attila became ruler of the Huns. So he's not, he okay, doesn't have okay. that to deal with yet. He, it's probably more sedate. Yes. That would make a lot of sense. I want to know how their clothes changed. Yeah, they're probably really different. Like, how did they not pick this guy out, like, wearing clothes from 300 years ago? What would that mean now? Like, I'd be wearing stays and a, you know, a whole petticoat. Like, that's a very fast, dramatic change. Yeah, but I feel like it changed much more slowly before we invented fast fashion. True. Because, like, if you have a peasant from the 3rd century and a peasant from the 5th century, I feel like they're wearing pretty much the same thing. Generally, but it doesn't say what level of society these guys are from. That's true. So I think... Like high fashion definitely would have changed because even even in like the the high Middle Ages, the beginning and the end of the high Middle Ages, like you have a, a very big transition. Yeah, of, no, I think you're right. Clothing. Fashion definitely changes much more quickly in the higher levels of society. So if if they're wealthy, then they probably are looking at the emperor and going, like, "What is he wearing? What is this?" Or like little customs and turns of phrase. Mm-hmm. That'd be interesting. Anyway, Maximian replied, "Believe us." For the faith's sake, God has resuscitated us before the great resurrection day, in order that you may believe firmly in the resurrection of the dead. So apparently someone has briefed Maximian on like the current heresy, and he's like, I can work with this. I bet we're here to prove that <laughs> people can be resurrected bodily. Or he just, he knew that that was the truth before the heresy even began. And so he's just speaking the truth of his own time. <laughs> oh, Wow. So, hold on. His statement implies that he thinks that they died and came back, not just fell he asleep. Does, yes. That's very interesting because the Bible, if you look at certain aspects of it, especially in the New Testament, instead of saying die, it does say sleep. So, even in early Christianity, you already have that kind of blurring of distinctions between death and sleep. I mean, you can make the argument that that's pretty blurred regardless. True, true. Like that's huh. something that always comes up in like philosophy of mind when people talk about continuity of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. you know, if, if you copied your brain into someone else, would you be the same person? Because like there's a divide there. People will go like, well, there's a divide when you fall asleep at night. So Yeah, that's true. Huh. Would you think you had died or did you think you just took a really long nap? Well, I'm from a different culture, so my first thought would be, oh, this must be some kind of space-time anomaly. Let's stay out of this there you cave. Go. There's something wild going on. Maybe there's a wormhole. <laughs> Bring the physicists. Bring the physicists. Yeah. Oh. Okay, keep going. For as the child is in its mother's womb living and not suffering, so have we lived without suffering, fast asleep. So there's, they're also blurring the line there. They're like, yeah, we were That's resurrected, true. but also we were asleep. Okay. Fair enough. Lines are blurred. And having thus spoken, they bowed their heads, and their souls returned to their maker. Wait, that's it? Yeah, they just die. They just die? Yep. That is the least satisfying ending to this. The emperor, rising, bent over them and embraced them weeping, 
He gave them orders for golden reliquaries to be made, but that night they appeared to him in a dream and said that hitherto they had slept in the earth, and that in the earth they desired to sleep on till God should raise them again, presumably at the judgment day. Right. That is the least satisfying ending. None of my questions are answered. They just, they're like, we're being persecuted. Let's go hide in this cave, even though we're being called before the court. So, like, they're already committing, you know, contempt of court. They go hide in a cave. They fall asleep. They wake up. And only one guy actually goes out to the town. Yep. And then the emperor shows up and he's like, wow, you guys are from 300 years ago. And they're like, yep. And we're here to testify about this specific heresy. Now, we'll be seeing you. And they just die. Yeah. <laughs> uh, why? Um, three, out, three out of ten miracle. <laughs> <laughs> the Lord works in mysterious ways. I guess. It's like it would be too dangerous to leave you alive. <laughs> I mean, that would be wild. Imagine, like, if they decided to try and seize power within the church, and the patriarch would be like, how do I compete with someone who's been dead for 300 years and was resurrected? Fair enough. Maybe the Lord decided the culture shock would have been too much. (laughs) It's better for them to just die. (laughs) Yeah, like... To be fair, that could have caused, like, dramatic ripples in the politics of the Eastern Roman Empire. That's that's true. Wow. But also, I would be here for that. Right? I want to read that story. Yeah. Oh, man. All right. Okay. We've got a few pages of commentary, which I'm not going to read directly, but I'll, I'll, I'll share some bits and pieces. Sabine Gould says that, to his knowledge, the first to commit it to writing was... Jacobus Sarogiensis, a Mesopotamian bishop in the 5th or 6th century. So again, like right around the transition from classical to medieval. Oh, and here's the reference to how it is changed in the Islamic tradition. Ooh, yes. Muhammad has somewhat improved on the story. He has made the sleepers prophecy his coming, and he has given them a dog. Aww, that is an improvement. Named Kratim, or Kratimir, which sleeps with them, and... Which is endowed with the gift of prophecy. The dog? The dog. Why a dog? Because that's awesome. I mean, sure. All right. Okay. I can work with that. And then this next bit is one of the things that made me think, maybe I should read the Quran because this sounds awesome. Yeah. As a special favor, this dog is to be one of the ten animals to be admitted into his paradise. So, Muhammad's paradise. The others being Jonah's whale... Solomon's okay. ant. Uh-huh. Now that's ant without a U, but that doesn't actually answer a lot of questions for me. Right. Ishmael's ram. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, that, that tracks. Abraham's calf. Okay. Now, oh, this no. next bit is definitely a serious statement, and neither you nor our listeners should laugh at it. No. The queen of Sheba's ass. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. The prophet Salek's camel. <laughs> Checks out, but still. <laughs> Moses' ox, Belkis' okay. cuckoo. See, now these just sound like euphemisms. <laughs> Whose cuckoo? His what? And oh, the 10th no. is Muhammad's ass. Okay, all right, amazing. So th- those are all like patriarchs and people that you generally know. Like, you know yeah. about these people, and then there's just these seven guys and their dog. Yeah. Well, I mean, they are saints. True. Are they saints in Islamic tradition? 
I don't even know if Islam has saints. I was gonna say, like they venerate different people, but it's not it's not saints, huh? That's interesting because they've they've fallen into obscurity in in Christian tradition. So I wonder if they take a more prominent place in yeah. Islamic tradition. We should we should bring in some more Islamic texts because this yeah. sounds pretty cool. Anyway, Baron Gould also says. It was perhaps too much for these seven sleepers to ask that their bodies should be left to rest in earth. In ages where saintly relics were valued above gold and precious stones, their request was sure to be shelved. And so we find that their <laughs> remains were conveyed to Marseille in a large stone sarcophagus, which is still exhibited in St. Victor's Church. Oh, wow. Okie dokie, Ben. That is enlightening commentary, nevertheless. Oh, and here is a list of um, parallels. He's doing his folklore thing. Ooh. Like many another ancient myth, it was laid hold of by Christian hands and baptized. Pliny, Pliny? Pliny. Pliny. Relates the story of Epimenides, the epic poet, who, when tending his sheep one hot day, wearied and oppressed with slumber, retreated into a cave where he fell asleep. After 57 years, he awoke and found everything changed. His brother, whom he had left a stripling, was now a hoary man. That's hoary with an A and without a W. There we go. Yes. Epimenides was reckoned one of the seven sages by those who exclude Periander. He flourished in the time of Solon. <laughs> I'm just going to exclude the other guy. Sorry. Keep going. Yeah, like, I, I guess that means that when people list off these seven sages, they could include either Epimenides or Periander as a seven. Right, right. Okay. Makes sense. After his death, at the age of 289... He was revered as a god, which, fair. Yeah, yeah, it checks out. And honored especially by the Athenians. This story is a version of the older legend of the perpetual sleep of the shepherd Endymion, who was thus preserved in unfading youth and beauty by Jupiter. Which sounds like Zeus practicing, like, godly taxidermy. I was gonna say he's keeping his, like, his side piece young. Yeah, but it doesn't say he wakes him up. <laughs> ooh, okay, that's, yeah, that's a weird form of, ooh, Greek god taxidermy. According to an Arabic legend, St. George thrice rose from his grave and was thrice slain. Again, we've got to read some more Arabic texts. I've heard that about George. That's really interesting. In Scandinavian mythology, we have Siegfried or Sigurd thus resting and awaiting his call mm -hmm. to come forth and fight. Yeah, we know that one. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Charlemagne sleeps in the Odenburg in Hesse or in the Untersberg near Salzburg, seated on his throne with his crown on his head and his sword at his side, waiting till the times of Antichrist are fulfilled, when he will wake and burst forth to avenge the blood of the saints. That's amazing to me because that implies that Charlemagne is going to like come back at the Day of Judgment, just sword in hand, like, all right, Jesus, who do you want me to kill? Like, That would be why? awesome. Like, like, I think I think the Lord's got this one, Charlemagne. You can you can chill. He works in mysterious huh. ways. Maybe he just wants to watch Charlemagne go. I mean, employ Charlemagne. That would be that'd be a great judgment day to watch. Okay, do we have a note on King Arthur here, or does it just go straight to Charlemagne? There are a number of ones listed. I don't think King Arthur is actually here. <gasps> no. I don't know. Let's keep going. Maybe I just missed it in my skimming. Ogier the Dane, or Olgerdansk, will in like manner shake off his slumber and come forth from the dreamland of Avalon, so someone's in Avalon at least, Okay. to avenge the right. And this is a contemporary <laughs> interjection by Mr. Baron Gould. Oh, that he had shown himself in the Schleswig-Holstein War. 
<laughs> I live for that type of, I would call it a marginalia. That's what it would have been if it were a medieval piece of writing. I live for authors' little side notes and commentaries like that. Well do I remember as a child, contemplating with wondering awe the great, and I'm gonna pronounce this wrong, Kifhoiserberg in Thuringia, for therein, I was told, slept Frederick Barbarossa and his six knights. A shepherd once penetrated into the heart of the mountain by a cave and discovered therein a hall where sat the emperor at a stone table, and his red beard had grown through the slab. At the tread of the shepherd, Frederick awoke from his slumber and asked, Do the ravens still fly over the mountains? Sire, they do. Then we must sleep another hundred years. But when his beard has wound itself thrice round the table, then will the emperor awake with his knights and rush forth and presumably trip to release yeah. Germany, <laughs> to release Germany from its bondage and exalt it to the first place among the kingdoms of Europe. That's aged poorly. We no longer want that to happen. Oh. Oh, wow. This is before either world war, to be fair. In Switzerland slumber three tells at Rutli, near the Wierwaldstatter Sea, waiting for the hour of their country's direst need. I think this is tells like William Tell. Huh, okay. In Scotland, beneath the Eildon Hills, sleeps Thomas of Ursuldoon. The murdered French who fell in the Sicilian Vespers at Palermo are also slumbering till the time has come when they may wake to avenge themselves. These are so relatively modern than any other, like, slumbering myths I've heard. When Constantinople fell into the hands of the Turks, a priest was celebrating the sacred mysteries at the great silver altar of St. Sophia. The celebrant cried to God to protect the sacred host from profanation. Then the wall opened, and he entered, bearing the blessed sacrament. It closed on him, and there he is sleeping with his head bowed before the body of our Lord, waiting till the Turk is cast out of Constantinople and St. Sophia is released from its profanation. Maybe this is just my modern, like, bias, but I feel like protecting the little Jesus wafer is probably not worth it. You can just buy boxes of them. Not back then you couldn't. That's true. See, that should be the next Uncharted game, or some, or variation therein. Because that's, that's just one of those adventure games waiting to be made. It's true. There is a saint in a wall in, like, Constantinople. That's pretty cool, yeah. All right, some more. In Bohemia, sleep three miners deep in the heart of the Kutenberg. In North America, Rip Van Winkle passed 20 years slumbering in the Catskill Mountains. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. I haven't heard that name in ages. Rip Van Winkle? Yeah. What? You haven't read Washington Irving recently? That's the right no! guy, right? I don't know. Oh, my gosh. Hang on. i got to look this up now. Yeah, it's Irving. That, like, fell deep into the recesses of my mind and did not come back until just now. Amazing. Okay. In Portugal, it is believed that Sebastian, the chivalrous young monarch who did his best to ruin his country by his rash invasion of Morocco, is sleeping somewhere. But he doesn't have an opinion. No. But he will wake again to be his country's deliverer in the hour of need. I, Based on this, the way he just characterized him, I feel like he, he's not the person people need. Yeah, no, let's not revive that guy. Olaf Tryggvason is waiting a similar occasion in Norway. Even Napoleon Bonaparte is believed among some of the French peasantry to be sleeping on in a like manner. Hmm, I can't believe this doesn't include King Arthur. It does not. Because that's like the quintessential king who sleeps who's going to come back story. We've got this Portuguese guy, but we don't have King Arthur. Maybe he just assumes everyone already knows that one. I guess. 
The Annals of Iceland relate that in 1403, a Finn of the name of Fethminger, living in Halogaland in the north of Norway, happening to enter a cave, fell asleep and woke not for three whole years, lying with his bow and arrows at his side, untouched by bird or beast. There certainly are authentic accounts of persons having slept for an extraordinary length of time, but I shall not mention any. Okay. <laughs> As I believe the legend we are considering not to have been an exaggeration of facts, but a Christianized myth of paganism. The fact of the number seven being so prominent in many of the tales seems to lead to this conclusion. Barbarossa changes his position every seven years. Charlemagne starts in his chair at similar intervals. Olga Dansk stamps his iron mace on the floor once every seven years. Olaf Redbeard in Sweden uncloses his eyes at precisely the same distances of time. I mean, seven has been a sacred number. I mean, at least in Western history. I guess does it originally come from a pagan influence, or does it? I have no idea. Because it's still, I want to say that it's still fairly revered in Hebrew law. I always think of it as a biblical thing, but that might just be because, you know, I grew up in the United States, which is kind of overrun by that sort of thing. The the Judeo-Christian tradition. Interesting. It could just be a universal motif. Like the number three, the number seven, those sort of things. Okay, so that was version number one. Yes, we may have to split this. Okay, fair enough. The remainder of this recording is the correspondence segment that we recorded a week or two, I think, before this episode is going to be released. Hawk, a messenger. All right. So what have we got for correspondence then? We got that really great message from, I believe it's pronounced Asm, but do correct me if I'm wrong. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I think it's Azam, but... My pronunciation could also be totally off. Yeah, sorry. We're horrible Americans. We're, We're very white. <laughs> it's what we are. <laughs> and so we names that aren't common in America are often just beyond us. They're very, yeah, they can be difficult. AC. He does sign it AC. Ah, well, let's go with that. Thing. So there we go. All right. Well, anyway, Azam, Azam or AC, again, let us know, sent us some really cool stuff about heraldry mm-hmm. and the kunocephali, or however you say that word. Oh, yes. Oh, the... The dog-headed people. First, he says that he stumbled upon us while trying to find an audiobook of the Toyn. Which is an impressive thing to be looking for in the first place. So, props to you, AC. Yeah, I'm not sure. I feel like there should be one of those, but who knows? I mean, this may as well be one. Hopefully a more entertaining one. Well, we are skipping a lot of bits, although I think most of the bits we're skipping are just like, and then Kukulin killed this man in a messy way. And then that's why there's this rock named after him. Yeah. It's all place names. But he says, and also, if I'm using the wrong pronoun, let me know, because I I don't want to misgender people. Correct, yeah. But apparently we are now their go-to podcast when driving to work, which I think is great. Woohoo! And they say, as a heraldist, I was very impressed on your first episode, as I'm certain it's the only podcast that has ever said the word adumbrated, which uh, might be true. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) If there's any real niche heraldry podcast out there, I want to hear about it. Yeah, I want to listen to a heraldry podcast. For sure. But they slightly correct us that it's not necessarily a silhouette but specifically the outline of an object. 
And apparently there is an extant example in the coat of arms of a place in Belgium that I am not going to even try to pronounce. No, it's a very difficult one. Yeah. They have an adumbrated lion rampant in the middle. Mm-hmm. It's like the prancing lion with the, with the claws up. Yes. For those of you who do not know rampant or other heraldic attitudes. Yes. And there's, there's a whole code to it. It's very, very fascinating, but I'm not an expert in it whatsoever. Asim is uh, from Indonesia and <laughs> is a, also a D&D player and says that they're creating a setting based off of early modern Southeast Asia, which I absolutely want to hear more about because mm-hmm. like, there is just so much cool stuff in the history of Southeast Asia that, again, doesn't seem to reach over into American like material very much. And I would really, really love to see more D&D stuff based on that region. For sure. There is, I think, hold on, I saw this just a little while ago. I saw something about a Kickstarter for, like, an African myth-based tabletop RPG today. That's cool. So it's, it's, rising in, it's rising in popularity, and we, need, we just need to have more content creators who, who do that sort of thing. This is what I was looking for. There are a couple people in Malaysia trying to do a Southeast Asia-inspired D&D setting, which they're calling A Thousand Thousand Islands. I recommend Googling that. That sounds like Earthsea. That sounds so cool. They're doing it in this, like, zine style, where you just get, like, a little magazine-style pamphlet, and each one is a separate island, and they've got, I think, nine of them so far. That's so cool! I uh, got the PDF for one of them earlier this week, just to check it out, and it's one of those things that is kind of, like, on the border between RPG supplement and artwork, so that's neat. That's the best. I also started following them on Twitter. (laughs) Nice. Yeah, so check that out. I will definitely link that in the blog. But the point is, Southeast Asia, lots of cool stuff there. Would love to see more D&D settings there. Please tell us more about yours. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And also, if you have a lead on any Southeast Asian literature that has been translated into English and could qualify as medieval, I would love to visit that region in the podcast at least once. Yes, for sure. I would love to visit that region in person at least once. Once we're, you know, out of the plague years. (laughs) Yeah. Moving on. One of the things he points out is that one of the possible origins for the, I'm just going to call them dog-headed people because I'm Mm -hmm. I'm not going to try and keep saying the Greek, is Mm -hmm. uh, people in the Mintawai. Again, I can't can't find a pronunciation guide for this. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Mintawai Islands, which are in Indonesia... And apparently there were people there who practiced tooth sharpening and were described by some people as dog-toothed, and that may have ended up being translated into dog-headed. I love these medieval games of telephone. Yeah. So I thought that was really cool. Yeah. And they also send along a link of the dog-headed King Matzenbrand from the German Armorial, uh, which I will also link, which is very, very cool. Yeah, this is a a late medieval German armorial that I believe is called, I'm not 100% on my German pronunciation either, but I'm pretty sure this says Das Wappenbuchs Konrads von Grunenberg, or the armorial of Konrad of Grunenberg. Everything sounds so much more badass in German. And we've got this full page picture of a dog-headed king and his court, which I think is fantastic. It's so cool. So we'll definitely link that. 
And mind you, the entire court is also dog-headed. And their attributed arms. Now, attributed arms was a fad in like the late medieval, early modern, I think into the Renaissance period, where people would take historical or mythological or biblical or whatever figures who didn't have heraldry and assign it to them. So you can look up like, this is the coat of arms of Jesus. This is the coat of arms of Julius Caesar. This is the coat of arms of King Arthur. That kind of stuff. I get like such e-boy vibes off of that. Like, it feels like such a medieval, like, e-boy, like, stan thing to do. I feel like I am too old to understand what an e-boy stan is. I struggle understanding what an e-boy is or an e-girl is at this point anyway, but it seems like one of those things that, like, someone who's super obsessed with, like, Cicero would be like, yeah, I made his coat of arms, too. I have it over my bed. You want to see? Okay, yeah, that does track. (laughs) You know, it's like... The, the one guy who's super, super into Cicero or super into, like, whoever. And it's just like, yeah, you know, he deserves his own coat of arms. So I designed it myself and had it made. There's also, incidentally, a coat of arms for the devil, which I thought was pretty cool. What is it? Oh, uh, it features in a fantasy story I read a while back, which is why I know about it. But I bet I can just Google it. I seem to remember it involves toads. That checks out. I'm a little bit surprised. It, like, I immediately thought of Cockatrice. That would be cooler. But also, I like toads, so meh. Toads are fun. Also, like, what kind of audacity do you have to have to design a coat of arms for Jesus? Right. That's ballsy, man. All right, so I found it. Ooh. The coat of arms of Satan is him. Ghouls a fess or between three frogs proper, which means a red shield with a golden stripe down the middle and... Three frogs, two above it, one below, that Mm -hmm. are frog-colored. That's proper just means the color they're supposed to be. So now I want to know what a frog means in heraldry. It's just a frog. It's just, wait, there's no meaning behind a frog? Oh, like whether there's a symbolism? That I don't know. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, they they do symbolize Satan, evil, and uncleanliness, apparently. So that seems unfair to, to frogs. Yeah, I like frogs. But apparently there are multiple different versions of Jesus's arms also. So you can, you can oh, do what you want with that. So apparently the frog symbolism comes from Revelation 16, 13. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. So it does make sense. Huh. Well, there you go. Attributed arms would are worth so much talk because there's a lot there, but we're, we can't get into it. We don't have the time. Right. We can't do it. We can't do it right now. Right. But All right. The ones of the dog-headed men, and maybe specifically of the king, I'm going to try and describe, and we'll also obviously put the link up. Yes. I'm not a heraldist. I am probably going to get the blazon wrong. And one of the things that's really throwing me about this is that there are two shields under one crest, and I don't know how to describe that in appropriate heraldic terms. I'll let you kick it off and I'll just add in what I see fit. Yeah. All right. So starting with the the actual shields, the one on the left, our left, not sinister or stage left, is azure, a bull statant, two sinister or armed and unguled ghouls, meaning it's a it's a blue shield. There is a golden bull with horns and hoofs of red and it's standing with all four feet on the ground and facing to Sinister, which is stage left or our right. And the one on the right, 
I had a lot of trouble trying to figure this out because I swear, I swear I've seen that thing before. But it might just be because that's how a lot of like reptilian things are drawn in bestiaries. And so that might be just confusing me. It looks terrifying. Yeah. Like it might be supposed to be a crocodile. I've seen pictures of uh, crocodiles and bestiaries that have those kind of human-like heads. It, it would make sense, but this seems, like, way more terrifying. Like, if this started skittering towards me in a darkened passage from the ceiling and then dropped down, I would just die. It would just pounce on me and eat me, and I would die. It might also be supposed to be a Lindorm. Oh, that would check out as well. Yeah, but... Until someone can point me to an accurate answer, I'm just going to call it a lizard. (laughs) Yes. So the one on the right is Argent, a lizard, Turgiant proper bendwise, meaning it's crawling, seen from above, Turgiant. Proper, it's just regular colored. And it's bendwise, it's on a slant. How did you learn all of these heraldic terms? I spend a lot of time just looking stuff up on Wikipedia. Fair enough. I'm impressed. And it has this very elaborate crest also, mm-hmm. which is, and I'm going to try my best with this, but that's a very elaborate coronet attached to it. So I'm going to get something wrong there. But Oof. upon a helmet mantled azure, doubled or this crest, issuant from a coronet, its rim ghouls, jeweled azure, a bull affronte, I'm probably saying that word wrong, or armed ghouls, meaning there's a helmet. And the, the shape of the helmet in uh, Heraldic Crest, I think, just is, it varies a lot, but mostly it depends on the rank of the bearer. So there's no, like, I don't think you really specify it. You just put the one that's appropriate. Right. Appropriate, to say that properly. It's got the mantle, the cloth around it, which is azure, blue, doubled or with a gold lining. And it's got a coronet, and that one's just standard, but it's very fancily decorated, Jeweled azure, it has blue gems on it, and issuant from it, poking out. That is to say, hold on, that is to say, there's a crown on top of the helmet. Yes, sorry. Is a bull affronte or, affronte, a golden bull facing front, armed ghouls, it has red horns. There we go. Now, I don't, I still don't know what the deal is with that lizard thing, but I do know why they are golden bulls in this picture and the previous one. Okay, go on. All right, so some accounts of the dog-headed people claim that they worship a ox god or a bull god, and they have little golden bulls and oxen as religious iconography. Oh, very Old Testament. Yeah, and I've come up with three possible explanations for where this came from. All right. Four. Four possible explanations of where this came from. All right. First... It could be a misunderstanding of the whole sacred cow idea from Hinduism. Oh, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Two, it could be a attempt to describe a religious practice that was common on whatever island or in whatever tribe originally inspired these that's just kind of gotten changed over the years. Like maybe there really was a lot of ox idols on... Boar imagery. Or not boar, but bull imagery. Maybe that was a religious practice that we just don't know about because, Mm. you know missionaries it could be completely made up is number three Mm -hmm. or number four it's something i haven't thought of also could also be that yes so someone can explain that to me cover our cover our bases all right oh and 
AC also recommends that we cover Land of Cocaine one day, and I think I've already said that I'm happy for you to do it, because I haven't read it, but I know it's Irish, and that's your area. It's a mess, is what it is. But yes, it's a fun mess, so we'll, we'll definitely, that gets bumped up in the list for sure. So first off, AC, thank you for sending us that information. We had a field day with all of that. And on Twitter, Brian Fullerton replied to us and was excited to hear that we had a shout out to Kung Fu Yoga. So I wanted to highlight that because, again, I'm, I'm surprised that anybody recognized that film, but I love it. So throwing that out there. And he also suggests that a garland of round bones could also be a string of pearls and might be a kenning to make the line rhyme. So I thought that was pretty cool. Oh, yeah, I remember seeing that. That was a good idea. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I feel like someone also suggested teeth, which I kind of like. Teeth would be so creepy, but so cool. All right. I think that's all I had. Thank you for listening to The Maniculum. Please consider leaving a rating and review in Apple Podcast to help support the project. For more geeky additions or to see our sources and notes, check out our blog, Marginalia, at themaniculumpodcast.com. You can also join our Facebook group, The Maniculum Podcast, to join in on discussions about all things medieval. And feel free to reach out. We're on Twitter, at Maniculum, and on Instagram, at Maniculum Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. And special thanks to Sandra Boyle, who created the music for our show. You can check out her project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify. Relates the story of Epimenides... Hold on. Epimenides...